This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. The department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture. Hey, young America, we need to talk about marijuana. Marijuana. I got some stuff you just gotta try. The suppression of the use of marijuana and of the forces lurking behind it are the most important jobs this department is now engaged in. And when it comes to drugs, just say no. Say no. Say no. Today on the Canadian Podcast. We're spending some time in the land of the free. Or when it comes to weed, the slightly less free. Cannabis remains illegal federally in the U.S. Under the 1971 Controlled Substances Act, it's classified as medically useless. Cannabis is Schedule One, as harmful as heroin. At the state level, though, most Americans can buy cannabis without any fear of arrest. 21 states have legalized it. The baby boomers were probably the first generation to really try marijuana in a big way and concluded that this isn't the danger that the government has been telling us. They've been lying to us. Well, the government wasn't exactly honest about cannabis when they first banned it in the 1930s either. We'll tell the story of how the Mexican Revolution, racism, and propaganda films got us to this point. I know what you want. You want to kill me. You're crazy. Take it easy, kid. I just want to talk to you. The patchwork of state and federal laws make it difficult to run a cannabis business. A bank cannot bank cannabis because it is still federally illegal. And that traces back to something we have called BSA, Bank Secrecy Act. It essentially put the onus on financial institutions that you have the responsibility to prevent crime, (laughs) to prevent proceeds from crime from entering the financial system. So we'll be talking to Peter Sue, a cannabis banker, about what that means and how Americans can still operate a financially successful cannabis business. That's coming up on the Canadian Podcast. I'm Don Schaefer. Before all that, Jay Coburn has the pot news. Veterans have a strong interest in exploring cannabis as a treatment option for conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder. That's according to a new report by the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the MHCC, in partnership with a veterans organization, the Atlas Institute. The report was based on conversations with veterans and their family members last summer aimed at identifying research priorities. More than 18,000 veterans were reimbursed for cannabis for medical purposes through Veterans Affairs Canada in 2022. But the report also showed use among veterans continues to be highly stigmatized. In the United States, the Department of Justice has launched the application form for a certificate of pardon for cannabis possession. The certificate is for people granted clemency by Joe Biden in October, when the president pardoned anyone previously convicted of possession under federal law or in Washington, D.C. That pardon was relatively limited, however, and didn't free anyone currently incarcerated or pardoned sellers of cannabis. And in the Netherlands, Amsterdam is banning the use of cannabis on the street in its famous red light district. 
The historic centre of the city's legal sex work trade has long been a tourist hub, partly due to the easy access to coffee shops where cannabis can be bought and smoked freely. Legal cannabis is still a rarity in Europe. The municipality of Amsterdam said in a statement, Residents of the old city centre experience a lot of nuisance from mass tourism and alcohol and drug abuse on the streets. That's the latest pot news. Back to you, Don. Starting tomorrow, adults can legally buy marijuana here in New York. Cannabis may be big business in the USA. It's legal in 21 states. More than half of Americans can buy recreational cannabis just by walking to their nearest dispensary. We have three different pricing tiers. We have our red label, green label, and black label. But at the federal level, it's banned. Even if that ban isn't enforced, it still means that businesses in cannabis legal states have to jump through many hoops. The big one is banking. If you buy cannabis in the U.S., you might not be able to use a credit card. If you sell or grow cannabis, you'll run into issues finding a bank account. Our producer, Karen Habashi, spoke to a cannabis banker to find out why that is and how to navigate banking in the American cannabis industry. My name is Peter Sue. I'm a senior vice president with Green Check Verified. We are the top cannabis banking compliance consultancy slash software in the space. Our roster of clients represents roughly half of the banks and credit unions that are banking cannabis in America. I was a longtime banker, 23 years or so in banking, and I write for Rolling Stone Cannabis Culture Council. You're a man of many talents. Well, a lot of free time. Not much of a social life, though, you know. <laughs> <laughs> None of us have, actually. <laughs> So tell me, what's cannabis banking? Sure. Well, so in America, we have an odd system where the federal law has now gone into discrepancy with state laws. You have a scenario where you have a product that is federally illegal, but again, in, in many states now, there's some form of legality. If you're in one of those states, let's say New York, where I am, technically, cannabis is fully legal. However, a bank cannot bank cannabis because it is still federally illegal. And that traces back to something we have called BSA, Bank Secrecy Act. It essentially put the onus on financial institutions that you have the responsibility to prevent crime, <laughs> to prevent proceeds from crime from entering the financial system. So selling marijuana then is a federal offense and the money therein is considered illicit funds. So on paper, all banks should not allow that to happen. That's a fact. So how do banks do it? Well, we also have a conflicting set of guidance from 2014, Vincent 2014 guidance, which essentially says, if you're going to bank cannabis, make sure you do this. And it lays out a set of guidance, red flags. So FinCEN, Financial Crime Enforcement Network, is a federal agency for us here, a primary banking regulator. So again, if you are a bank and you're reading the FinCEN 2014 guidance, you would say to yourself, oh, okay, as long as I follow these guidance points, look at these red flags, I'm good to go, right? The long version of this is to come back and say, well, here is where a company like us comes in. The regulatory burden of banking cannabis then is not that you can't do it, but the burden is so high. The hurdle is so high and there's so much work involved in the early days. Prior to companies like us being in existence, both programs that I ran, we had manual programs. We didn't have software available. We used to have this ratio, we would say five to eight. So for every five to eight cannabis businesses you bank, you would have to add another body. That's how much work is involved. 
And if you think about it, it's because you would have to prove that every dollar deposit can be traced to a dollar worth of legal goods. Like every dollar that is coming in. That's very confusing. I'm, I'm like doing the math in my head and I'm trying to know how, how do they do that. And I'm still like, okay. <laughs> well, you know, in a way, that's where we come in. In the very early days, and when we first started, you're talking Colorado, California. And this is probably around the same time that Canada started looking at it as well. The industry was, in fact, unbanked for all of those reasons we just discussed. Banks were essentially saying, no, we cannot do this. This is not possible. Now, mind you, this is prior to FinCEN 2014 guidance. Fast forward to today, I mean, that idea that there is no banking, that's not true anymore. FinCEN estimates that there's some 755 financial institutions banking cannabis. So financial institution for us could be banks or credit union, any depository institution. Most insiders would agree that that number is way too high. There's no way there's anywhere near 700. We think it's more like 200, maybe 250. But regardless, you're still talking about a couple of hundreds of institutions. Now, of course, it's worth noting that if you did take that number, say it's 200, you divide it over, what is it now, 38 states. Yeah, it's, it's only a handful in every state. But again, the point is, is that there is banking available. Now, there is a question of capability, capacity, and costs. So in other words, there's not a lot of banks. A lot of them are predominantly smaller banks, and it costs a lot of money. So it's hard for you to find. You might not be super happy with the product, and it'll cost you more money. Wow, they're making it so hard for cannabis retailers and growers to grow yeah. business. Because yeah. on the state level, it's fine. but the federal level, it's not fine. But again, the state level is very complicated. Like, we're fine, but we're not really fine. The weird thing is they always talk about we want to fight crime, we want to fight drug usage, but you're making the cannabis retailers keep cash only on site, which increases the crime rate. Yeah, you know, one of the issues with the heavy cash usage is not so much the banking, it's actually credit cards. If you want to put money in the bank, generally speaking, you can do that. Credit cards, however, remain unavailable. And that, of course, is for the same reason. It's because of the federal illegality. We have the same associations, MasterCard, Visa, the big ones. They have a prohibition against cannabis. In Canada, there is what they call an MCC, Merchant Credit Code. So you can process a cannabis transaction. There is a way to legally, compliantly process a cannabis transaction. In America, no such thing exists. So you literally cannot swipe a credit card. So where do you come? I own a cannabis retail shop. I want to start. So if I want to loan, what do I do? If I want to do daily transactions or I want to deposit my money, the big banks, they don't want me. And I have no idea what the hell I'm going to do. What are the steps you're going to take with me and with the bank? So good news, bad news. The good news is, again, people are getting banked. And yes, we get that increase all the time. The bad news is your typical business owner, you're used to walking into a bank, you're asked for three, four, five pieces of documents, and that account can be opened that week, that day even, right? That's not going to be the case in cannabis. They're asking you for 30, 40 pieces of paper, and it might take upwards of a month to get the account open. So I guess I would say patience. Unfortunately, it is a highly regulated industry that is living in a murky area right now, but But the good news, again, is that it will work. It will happen. So what do you do with the banks? How do you negotiate with them? Or Because I just want to know how the puzzle works. Okay. This might be easier if I walk you through an example. 
So let's say you are a cannabis business, legal one, obviously. You put $100,000 of deposit in the bank today. Mind you, we're talking about cash too, you know? So $100,000 of deposit comes into the bank. The bank now, again, needs to be sure that every dollar can be accounted for. So let's say for the sake of argument, you're able to tell that $80,000 of it was legal goods. So this is what you're reporting to the state. We use metric, MJ Freeway, BioTrack, etc. So generally speaking, we get shadow files. Like, what are you reporting to the state? You give us that information. We match up to your deposit and your sales receipts. Now, in my example, that means there's $20,000 of other, right? That might be okay. It could be things like batteries, vape cartridges, hats. <laughs> but how do we account for those? Well, we need to go through your sales receipts, right? Match them up to the deposits. As a bank, I need to be able to do that for every transaction, every day, for every one of my customers. And I need to be able to keep that in a readily auditable format, meaning a year from today, the examiners might show up and say, Peter, I want you to show me how you know that on February 2nd, 2023, this $80,000 was all legit and that these $10,000 were batteries. How did you know that? And keep in mind, in my example, I'm saying you know that the $80,000 was good, meaning it's metric approved. How do you know that even? So the answer to all those questions is roughly where we come in. In the old days, we used to do it manually. We used to literally take sales receipts. So you would email it to us, fax it to us, however you got that information to us. So it's essentially comparing three pieces of data. You've got sales receipts, you have deposit in the bank, and you have state reported data. Comparing the three, looking for the outlier, getting information that matches to the outlier, and then again, somehow keeping this all organized in a way that's auditable, frankly. So what do we do? Well, we do all of that through software. We ingest data from your POS, from your point of sale. We obviously export the information that shows that this is what you're reporting to the state. We then look for the sales receipts of like, okay, these were batteries, these were based on SKUs. And then of course, we have that capacity to collate this information and keep it all auditable. So what we do really is not super fancy. It's the ultimate sort of grunt work. That was Peter Sue, a cannabis banking consultant and senior vice president with GreenCheck and Verified. He was speaking to our producer, Karen Habashi. The story of cannabis prohibition in the USA began in Mexico in 1910. Over a decade, political instability south of the border became a revolution. And while that revolution eventually led to the end of a dictatorship, it was bloody and long. Like many migrants throughout history, Mexicans were escaping violence, and the direction to escape was north, to the United States, where the economy, for the most part, was vibrant. This was a time of rapid growth in the United States. The Ford Motor Company's assembly line brought mass production, and after the First World War came the Roaring Twenties. Cinema was booming as Hollywood entered its golden age. Wait a minute, I tell you, you ain't heard nothing. You want to hear trick, trick, trick me? All right, hold on. One of the greatest infrastructure projects in U.S. history, the interstate highway system was under construction. In every state all across the nation, man and machine went to work. 
Humans were even defying gravity. He made it. Charles A. Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy as they call him, landed at Le Bourget Airport, Paris at 5.24 this afternoon. The United States of America felt like a place where anything was possible. The contrast with Mexico's bloodshed could not have been more stark. And so the number of Mexican migrants counted in the census tripled between 1910 and 1930. They brought with them language, food, and culture. But they also brought something else. Marijuana. The Mexican government is very concerned about the impact of marijuana smoking on crime, on deviancy. So a lot of the negative messages that ultimately emerge in the United States did have a precursor in Mexico. This is Dr. Scott Martin of Bowling Green State University in Ohio. He's a historian who specializes in the history of drugs and alcohol in the early 19th century U.S. He's here to help me tell this story. The cannabis plant was not new to the United States. Farmers had been mandated to grow hemp as early as 1619. But smoking cannabis as a drug, that became associated with Mexicans, with that foreign-sounding word, marijuana. As with any national setting, pretty much at any time, one of the ways that governments have approached various mind-altering substances, whether it was gin in 18th century London or marijuana in 20th century Mexico or crack in the 1980s, governments have used drugs as a way of defining deviancy. So people who are associated with drugs are demonized along with the drug. And I think that's pretty much the pattern that follows in the United States as well. As with Canada, the story of cannabis prohibition in the USA is a story of racism enabled and perpetuated by the government. And there's one man at the heart of it, Harry J. Anslinger. He was a very intense individual, very committed to the war against drugs. He was like many white people of his time, racist, and would easily see connections between drugs and minority groups, whether or not they were actually there. Harry Anslinger was an ambitious agent of prohibition. He began as a railway cop for the Pennsylvania Railroad. After that, he spent a decade traveling the world policing drug smuggling. When he returned to the States, he was made an assistant commissioner in the U.S. Bureau of Prohibition. He was viewed by colleagues as honest and incorruptible, rare qualities in alcohol and narcotics agents at the time. And so in 1930, at the age of 38, Harry Anslinger was appointed the founding commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. The FBN would go on to become the DEA. He exerted an enormous impact on American drug policy in the 20th century, and he only retires in, I think, 1963. So he is there for decades and decades exerting this very strident influence on American drug policy. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. He was a fan of punitive approaches to it. If you have a drug problem, you find the people who are using and selling drugs and you lock them up for as long as possible. And this really tended to shape American drug policy. 
certainly well into the 70s. I mean, you could argue even still today. The FBN was in something of a turf war with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI had a shiny new name and their own version of Harry J. Anslinger, J. Edgar Hoover. There is no doubt as to where a real communist loyalty rests. Their allegiance is to Russia, not the United States. Hoover's FBI was battling the Red Scare, the fear of communist infiltrators within America. And he'd already fought organized crime, apparently successfully. In the 1930s, Gangland's golden era neared its end. Hoover had completed his reorganization. The FBI prepared to battle crime on a wide front. If Harry Anslinger wanted to justify a budget like the FBI's, cocaine and heroin weren't going to cut it. Anslinger needed something just as threatening to the fabric of the United States, something as un-American as communism, something foreign and dangerous. And in marijuana, he found a scapegoat. This is the opening to the 1936 film, Reefer Madness. It begins with the text, The motion picture you are about to witness may startle you. It would not have been possible otherwise to sufficiently emphasize the frightful toll of the new drug menace which is destroying the youth of America in alarmingly increasing numbers. Marijuana is that drug, a violent narcotic, an unspeakable scourge. The acting isn't good, the writing isn't good, but it's basically a propaganda film for the campaign against marijuana. The film was originally financed by a church group. It's an anti-cannabis propaganda film, and today it's pretty funny. Of course, if you're afraid. And it concerns the corruption of a number of otherwise upstanding high school students who get involved with an organized gang that holds parties and sells marijuana and gets young people hooked on it. Jack, is she all right? She's dead. All sorts of awful things happen at the end. One of the characters goes insane for marijuana and murders another one with a fireplace poker. Take it easy, kid. I just want to talk to you. <laughs> another character at the end who was part of the gang commits suicide because of the horrible things that she's done. So it's really just an over-the-top depiction of marijuana and its effects on youth. Reefer Madness looks funny today. But at the time, it was a reflection of the racist moral panic around marijuana. They talk about, well, where are the kids getting this? And one of the places was tamale vendors. And they don't identify them specifically as Mexican. But who are tamale vendors going to be in American cities at this point? This apparently psychotic, murder-inducing new drug was being pushed on good white American kids by Mexican food vendors. And it really also extends to other minority groups as well, particularly African-Americans. And so it becomes sort of a marker of, in a sense, racial deviancy, although white people did smoke it as well, particularly in places like Hollywood and the avant-garde. But it really becomes associated, I think, with people of color. There's a tendency, because it can be construed as coming from Mexico, it's an external threat. 
This was all part of Anslinger's strategy. Marijuana becomes his justification for a big federal budget, for more agents, and for a broader mandate. Anslinger is there in the background, fanning the flames by feeding the media stories. What he does is to demonize marijuana as a drug that's worse than heroin, that's worse than all the other drugs put together, and is very canny about the FBN's public relations on this issue. Anslinger maintains what has been called a gore file, which is essentially exaggerated stories of people committing heinous crimes while high on marijuana. So, you know, some boy in Ohio smokes a joint and kills his entire family with an axe. And Anslinger has pictures. He can provide copies to newspapers to, to put all these things together. Anslinger's gore file is full of fabricated or exaggerated stories designed to make marijuana look bad. We asked Dr. Scott Martin if he thinks Anslinger really believed this stuff or whether it was purely political ambition. I think it's hard to separate those things out. If you tell yourself something long enough, you begin to believe it whether or not it's true. And I think there's that aspect of Anslinger as well. During the, when was it, I think the 30s, Fiorella LaGuardia in New York commissions a study about marijuana, and it concludes that it's really not that big a deal. And Anslinger just completely rejects this out of hand. That can't be true because of what I believe. And look at my gore file, right? Whatever his motivations, he was successful. In 1937, Congress enacted the Marijuana Tax Act, written by Anslinger himself. Even the name of that act feels like a piece of his propaganda. Generally, we spell it with a J, you know, marijuana and like that. For the legislation, it's spelled with an H, the Marijuana Tax Act. And there's, you know, a lot of theories and a lot of evidence about why that was. But in general, it was seemed to make it more exotic and perhaps foreign. To the Treasury agents of the Bureau of Narcotics comes the job of wiping out this traffic. And in 1937, we smashed 10 major narcotic rings. The law was a fudge to prohibit the drug federally through the tax system. To possess, buy, or sell cannabis, you needed to buy a tax stamp, and those were almost impossible to buy. The laws only got more punitive with the Boggs Act of 1951 and finally Nixon's Controlled Substances Act of 1971, which declared cannabis a Schedule I controlled substance with no medical value. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. The origins of that law were racist too. In an interview of John Ehrlichman, who had obviously been one of Nixon's major henchmen, Ehrlichman was commenting on drug policy and he said the Nixon administration's two major opponents were the hippies, the anti-war movement, and African-Americans, right? And they couldn't go after them just because of who they were. So one of the things that they did was to demonize the drugs with which those groups were associated. This act is still the law which governs which drugs you can and can't use. Despite being legal at the state level, cannabis is still illegal under federal law. It's still classified as medically useless, as dangerous as heroin and cocaine. But at least if you want to walk into a dispensary in New York and pick up a quarter ounce, you can do that. Just make sure you've got cash on you. 
I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, go to westernbuzz.ca. The Canadian Podcast is an everything podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the podcast team or our partners. This show is intended for a 19-plus audience. Thanks to our team, creative director Cliff Dumas, showrunner Kevin Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, and our sound engineer is John Massacar. I'm Don Schaefer. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Podcast, the authority on cannabis in Canada. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.